This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. No such thing as a pretty labia. There is what an ideal might be, and we can blame Dr. Netter for that. Dr. Netter was a famous anatomist and drew most of the pictures that you see in anatomy books today. And the labia are pictured as really, 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 really tiny. The labia minora and the labia majora are just so But now we do know that that is actually not the case at all for almost every human female. I remember a few years ago, reporters from The Guardian out of the UK created a 3D depiction of the female parts. Then they took that around Madison Square Park in New York City to see if women could identify these parts. And unfortunately, many could not. So today, I speak with Dr. Nicole Williams, who is the author of This Is How You Vagina. She is a native of East St. Louis and board-certified obstetrician and gynecologist with the philosophy of marrying both alternative and traditional medicine. And today's conversation is a really important one. If you think about it, we live with our bodies every day. And so sometimes when something goes awry, we may not notice it because again, it could be something that happens slowly over time. Additionally, we may be dealing with things that family members and friends have dealt with. So it becomes normalized because again, we all live with our body and we think whatever is happening is normal unless it becomes extreme. And so today, what we really do talk about is what is the average normal for how it looks, how it should smell, you name it, so that you can begin to identify when it's time to see a doctor and how to talk to that doctor to get the support that you need. So let's dive in with Dr. Williams. This is my pandemic project. So we all had, you know, we're ba- people were baking bread and building furniture. And I said, well, I do have a degree in English literature. And when's the last time I actually used this degree that, I, that my mama paid for? I wanted to do this for my patients. I originally wanted to make it actually very small, like a pamphlet, maybe like three, four pages, like, you know, tick marks, like this is it, this is normal, this is not, this is normal, this is not. And I started writing that. And then I realized, oh my goodness, each of these things is a chapter. I need to talk a little bit more about each of these things. And I started writing and realized I had 67 pages. I'm like, oh crap, I got to write a whole book now. It's my goal in educating and talking and writing this book and having people read it, hopefully cover to cover. Because I wanted to be thick enough that it's enough information, but not so much that people think, oh, totally overwhelming. I don't want to read this. I can't read this entire thing. It's too. It's entirely too thick. I think it's enough for my patients to really gain foothold of understanding about their anatomy, because it's just not talked about as much as we need to talk about it. 
What I also like is you interjected history about why there's, you know, a lot of the things that are today, like the terminology that we're using and some of the myths and misperceptions and maybe some of the way women are being treated in which in ways that we probably shouldn't be. And so it's really interesting to, to get that background. So I definitely recommend people read the book to get the details. So why don't we cover some of the highlights so people get a sense of the types of things that you wrote about. So first, I wanted to start by the this quote in your book where it says, the vagina serves as both a sexual and functional organ able to give us indescribable pleasure during sex and allowing enough stretch for the birth of a human child. And I thought that was such a beautiful summary of the vagina. But what I thought we could do is one of the things you talked about in there, and actually I had interviewed Dr. Rachel Rubin, and we did a whole episode on orgasm. And one of the things she said she does with her patients is she gives them a mirror to look at and she gives them a tour of their female parts. And I thought maybe you could give us a general tour of some of the things that we should know about, including a little bit of an overlay. So like, for example, the key parts and misperceptions, like the Mm -hmm. color sizing, the clitoris being bigger than we imagined, all that stuff. So maybe you could just give us like a little bit of a tour and some things that we may have misperceptions about. Now, it depends on your ethnicity. So the first thing you're going to see when you stick a mirror down there is labia majora. Those are the fat ones. Those are the ones everybody's supposed to be, you know, super chubby, almost like butt cheeks, but around your vagina. And those are generally the same color as your skin. That's hair bearing too. So we want the hair there for a reason. And we can talk a little bit about that and why your vagina does have hair on it. That's actually purposeful. Then once you go into the labia minora, and that's going to be those little ones in the inside. Now those might vary in length, breadth, or color. If you are very, very pale or Scandinavian, or is it going to be like this kind of pink and actually way pinker than the rest of you? They might be really like beefy pink. And, or if you are a person who has melanin, then those same little labia are going to appear dark. And that's actually completely normal. No need to bleach that because it's supposed to be the way it's supposed to be. Now, I also want to show this little area here between your vagina and your anus. That's your perineum. That's the thing that the goddess let rip when you have a baby. Why that? Because there is nothing erogenous between your vagina and your rectum. Nada. It's just a bit of, it's all called a perineal body and it's meant to rip. And that's, and it closes together. Actually, if you did very little, if you have a little tear, you don't have to do anything to it when you have your baby. Then if we look up top, and this is why the goddess is amazing, everything is safe. And there has been some anecdotal evidence about women who are in labor, having a baby, experiencing incredible pleasure at the height of the birth, because what's happening is that's actually being stimulated. And that's Dr. Graffenberg's spot. That's what you will, that's what you can stimulate with a partner or with your own finger when, whenever you do want to have what is called a vaginal orgasm. But we all know that all orgasms are clitoral. It's just that the, there is a portion of the clitoris that is located immediately superior, like right on top. If you put a finger in there and go like this, 
up and down, like a come here kind of motion, that's where you're going to feel it. So we have labia majora, labia minora, perineum. Of course, you'll see your vaginal opening, clitoris. And of course, the mons is the thing on top. And that's hairy. We talked about that being hairy. And also, if you look very, very closely right on the inside where the vagina is, you're going to see these little like finger like projections. So if you've never had penetration, that might just be a little straight little line of pink right there. That's the hymen. If you've had penetrative anything or ridden a bike or done um, bars or anything like that, that just might be little finger like projections in indicating that it's torn. All that is, is a hymen. We don't necessarily need it. It is a vestige. It has no special properties of magic. So there's no need to keep it. If you think that it's something special, it is not, it's just leftovers. Aren't a lot of people trying like upset about the sizing and then also the, the coloring outside, like where is that coming from? When we're talking about labial or vaginal beauty, I tell my patients this all the time. It's all ugly. That's why we sit on it. Faces are beautiful. That's why they're on top. Because I want to give you perspective. No such thing as a pretty labia. There is what an ideal might be. And we can blame Dr. Netter for that. Dr. Netter was a famous anatomist and drew okay. most of the pictures that you see in anatomy books today. And the labia are pictured as really, 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 really tiny, the labia minora and the labia majora are just so, but now we do know that that is actually not the case at all for almost every human female. In my book, I go into detail about this and I found an artist from England who did a plaster cast and left them race-free. So it's all just plaster. So you don't know what the ethnicity of the person is. It looks like asymmetry is the norm rather than symmetry. Right. Sometimes one labia is bigger than the other one, and that's really okay. Sometimes the labia major are very small. Sometimes they're very big. Sometimes something's hanging. Sometimes it isn't. And this is all normal. Porn hasn't helped. But then again, normal medical society hasn't helped either. The clitoris wasn't even pictured in anatomy books until we got a really good MRI view of it in the 1990s, but we started putting the pictures in there sometime in the early 80s education for physicians. And even looking at the pictures that we look at in our anatomy books, it doesn't look like that. Women don't look like that. And because this is what we see, we try to achieve what we think is an ideal, almost like you know African women using bleaching cream to try to get their skin to be lighter or some women trying to narrow their noses because the ideal beauty is that of a European. Very similar to what's going on down below. And I want my patients, I want everybody to unlearn those things because it doesn't help our self-esteem when we don't think that we're pretty. And that's why I say it's all ugly. It's beautiful in its functionality. That's what I wanted to focus on, the function and the form. And that is what's beautiful. Another one that comes up is smell. And so how does someone know if it's, and, and this goes back to like, again, I don't know if it's this perfection too, because of douching and all of these things that are being pitched about 
making it smell better down there and all these things. And so I think it's really important to cover like what is normal. So the idea of having one's vagina smell a certain way goes back at least about 60, 70 years ago. The earliest reference I found about this modern reference is kind of sometime in the 1950s where they use Lysol. In, in McCall's magazine, there was an ad for Lysol. It's actually in the book. And it pictures a woman who's sitting looking very distraught, very despondent. And there's a man in the background walking out the door looking at her sideways like, hmm, that's nothing nice. And the caption says, why does she spend the evenings alone? And what? Then- I don't remember. I don't remember this one because I remember reading the Lysol about um, how you, women got sprayed down after birth. I don't remember this one. I have to go look for it again. Okay. Because I did do screenshots of so many of those. Yes. And it, you know, to keep a happy home, oh my right? God. That's where it started. A vagina is supposed to have a slightly tart smell, almost like a, maybe a little bit like sourdough, but not necessarily like a yeasty kind of smell, but just a little a fresh tart smell. That is going to be somewhere in the realm of your signature scent. Who you are when your vagina is well hydrated and well oxygenated, there's going to be a a faint scent there. And it's not daisies. It's not roses. It's not Chanel. It's your own personal scent. So when you're healthy, take note of that and know that's who you are. Why do we have that scent? It goes back to bonding of couples. Kind of like when you have a baby and you make, um, you breastfeed, you make oxytocin in your brain and it actually helps you bond with your child. What we know is that smell is one of the strongest emotional triggers. When your partner nuzzles his or her face or their face into that area and your signature scent is there, however faint it may be, they remember that and they associate that with something positive and that bonds you. That's why we want that smell as opposed to some generic douchey kind of thing that doesn't smell all that great in the first place. And it's certainly not memorable. That's why we have that smell. So take a note of it. And speaking of douching, what would your comment be about douching for those who are like, I don't care. I'm doing it anyways. I'm going to douche. Let's go with just a few things. You don't want to do because you have healthy bacteria in your vagina, just like you have healthy bacteria in your mouth and in your entire GI tract. We want bacteria there. Bacteria actually are helpful. When you douche, you kill all the bacteria, good, bad, everybody. And when the good bacteria are killed, the bad bacteria are the ones that grow in its place, which makes the smell worse. So you just made yourself a self-fulfilling prophecy. You killed all the bacteria, then the bad bacteria grow. Then you have a smell that is untoward because only bad bacteria are growing. Then you do some more. It's a vicious cycle. It's a vicious cycle. So no douching. A question here, because I was reading about different solutions for various um, conditions like yeast infections and, and other things that may may come up. And I don't remember which one it was for, but you had recommended sitz baths, which, oh my gosh, after de- like delivery, oh my goodness, amazing. But then I know that vaginal steaming, and we're also talking about douching is a no-no. So I guess I'm wondering what the fine line is around why douching is a no-no. 
sits baths are okay. And then I do have questions about vaginal steaming because there's so many different perspectives on that. And I know you have one as well. So let's, let's compare douching and a sits bath. Like why is douching not good, but a sits bath is okay. And first, can you just define a sits bath just in case people don't know Um, what it is? A sits bath is from the German sitzen, which means to sit. So it's putting your buns in either you can have your own little tub of water or just your buns in an actual tub of water, which is what most people are going to do. The difference between doing a douche and doing a sits bath is that when I recommend just a couple of drops of hydrogen peroxide or some other soothing emollient, like a little bath oil or something like that, it's in a big tub. It's going to be much more dilute and it's more soothing to the external vulva. That's what I'm talking about. Nothing in the vagina. Sure, a little bit's going to get in, but we're not. And so the difference is if you're douching, it's concentrated and you're just pushing it into your vagina. This baths are primarily to soothe the external vulva and a little bit might get in, like we said, but it's dilute. So it's not going to throw off your pH. Now, what about vaginal steaming? Uh, So I will admit I've done it. And I was having, I think it was recurrent yeast infections or whatever was going on with me. And I finally did that because I happened to be talking to someone about it and have not had an issue since. So I am a fan. I don't have time to do them a lot, but I've done them twice, I think. But I was a huge fan and I was reading your book and I'm like, oh, this is interesting. So we have to talk about this. First of all, there's no clinical proof that any steaming has ever helped. So the concern is, You're doing something that has no clinical benefit that we aren't aware of whatsoever. Uh, Secondarily, steaming, that steam, it could burn. There's a possibility there, especially if you're dealing with a a clinic or a place that doesn't know what the hell they're doing with it. Um, Thirdly, nothing that you're going to put like around here. I mean, it might be soothing. That's fine. But to treat hormonal imbalance, some of the claims that I've seen saying that it's going to treat your irregular periods. It's going to bring your hormones into balance. It's going to bring your pH into balance. Nothing that you're going to do like a one-time thing that's an alternative treatment is probably going to work, not once. Now, normal medicine from Walgreens, if you have a yeast infection, you take one pill, generally that works because it has studied. We know that it works. We've actually looked at under the microscope at the yeast before and after treatment. We know those things work. My concern is when people do these things and they feel better because subjectively you might feel better. Objectively, you may not have had yeast at that time. Right. Because you don't have any objective data that said we tested Georgie's and then we said, we looked at it. Oh goodness, that's yeast. And then you did a steam and then we looked again and then we tested you again. Oh no yeast. We don't have that. All we have is how you felt. It might make you feel fine. And like I said in the book, I have a very good friend of mine who will remain, whose name will never be spoken by me on any podcast anywhere ever. When she breaks up with a guy, she does a little ritual steam. And, you know, she makes her feel better. And steam, you know, it's fun. You know, I have a humidifier in my house. I'm not going to squat over it. But, (laughs) you know, like if, for example, you know, my pants are too tight today. And, you know, because I've been eating. And I usually wear a size four, but I'm probably more like a size six right now. And my pants are a little tight. I could see how a steam could be soothing, but I don't want people to think that just because it's soothing, it's going to solve a problem. Got it. I love that. That is perfect. 
Because, um, and you know, this is one of the things I want to bring up. So my background is in the healthcare industry. And, you know, right now I've been battling with um, incapricis for my son, which is another term for constipation, because he's been holding it in. And I've been navigating the healthcare system. And what's hard is, you know, even in women's health, there's just not a lot of funding for these, uh, for clinical trials, so that doctors have the evidence. And so, we're left with doctors have so many, only so many tools that have data behind it. And mm-hmm. then there are these other things that, you know, would are not studied and we have social media. So it's a challenge. Like with my son, where I was going with that is right now, the solutions they have are Miralax and Xlax. And the, the doctors have told me like no one, first of all, using them in kids is off-label, but because they're over-the-counter products, no one's going to make money by doing trials. And since doctors already accept that over that they're fine for children, no one's going to study it because it's not, it's not cost-effective for a company to do it when doctors are using it anyway. So these are the business decisions because unfortunately healthcare is capitalistic. We're stuck with some people do vaginal steaming and get burned and others do it and don't, and we don't know if it actually works. So- I, I did want to at least bring that up. So thank you so much for your perspective. I think it's a really, really important one. I want you to talk about your recipe for a yeast infection because I got such a chuckle out of it. It was like the first chapter sample of your book. I want to read it verbatim. Okay, so I found it. It's on page 86 and it says recipe for a yeast infection. One thong, one panty liner, thong sized, of course, one pair of tights, one skinny jean or legging. Take any combination of these and mix together for at least two days. And so one of your recommendations is not to wear a thong. Like, tell us about the thong because I'm getting older, so I wear them less often, but I used to wear them all the time. So what's wrong with a thong? Tell us, tell us. They make us, they make pants look so much better. But my thing about panty lines is this. People know I'm wearing panties. So who cares if they see a line? But secondarily, Thongs were invented, well, the, 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 the rumor, the, the, the legend goes that thongs came, were, come up, were invented by either very enterprising exotic dancers or the guy who was helping out the exotic dancers. We don't know exactly who, but okay. during the World's Fair in New York City, whenever that World's Fair was, it was quite some time ago, they banned all new dancing in, um, in that whole entire borough, in that area. And so in order to get around that, they just cut out the cheek part of the underwear and left the butt. So you can see the butt because that's what people really wanted to see more than anything else. And that's how thongs are invented. So thongs were not invented to make your gown not have a panty line. They were invented to uh, facilitate all nude exotic dancing. But the problem with a thong is if you're wearing like every single day all the time, your vagina becomes not as oxygenated as what it needs to be. A non-well-oxygenated vagina, the pH eventually over time can get thrown off. Not with every woman, of course. I mean, I have patients, they wear a thong every single day of their lives. You wear a thong every day. Like, and I go, yeah, they wear a thong every day. I'm a, no problem with it. I'm like, okay, no problem with it. No problem with it. But if you are a patient or a lady who is having a little bit of a smell or a little bit of discomfort or something's kind of like, and they wear a thong on a regular basis and not just for date night, then consider that could be one of the reasons. And that's why 
if my patients who come to me, I ask them, are you wearing leggings? Are you wearing thongs? If they are, then it probably is one of the reasons why they're having uh, yeast issues. And I think you recommend sleeping uh, nude at night without any. Yes. You want to give her moonshine as well. Okay. That, that's great. And moonshine. I love that. So then what else, because yeast infections are quite common. What are some things that you would like us to know about yeast infections, like things to watch out for, ways to prevent it, like crazy things people do to get rid of them? That's like, heck no, please, please stop doing that. Tell us what you're seeing in your practice. People like to try things that they read about on the internet because of testimonials from other people who have done these things. So I've had everything from garlic inside to yogurt inside. I had a poor patient who, and, and this happened after the book was published. And I said, oh, I wish that I had still rewriting the book. She got peach yoplait, the peach kind with the little peach bits. And so she picked out the peach bits, ate those and put the rest in there. Ouch. Of course, that's not plain yogurt and full sugar. So it probably just made everything worse. And it's yoplait and you don't want that in your panties. I've had people put garlic cloves in there, um, lots of things in there to kind of, and then I've seen people take probiotics, which can be useful, but it may not be the proper probiotics that we can talk about that a little bit. So when it comes to preventing a yeast infection, we want a well aerated vagina, well oxygenated, meaning, you know, keep away from things that are binding, sleep without underwear, nothing very fitting. Like if you off to the gym, when you leave the gym, if you have like a long train ride home, you're going to want to at least try to take off those clothes, your gym clothes before you get on the train to go home. Because if you have 30 minutes, another 40 minute ride, then you're just sitting in that sweaty, icky. It doesn't matter if it's like wicking away or whatever, the fancy leggings that you pay $200, it's not going to matter. You'll just take them off. Because when you have that warm, moist environment, yeast is going to proliferate. Now we most women, about 70% of women are going to have a few little yeast buds in their vaginas, which is fine to have as long as everything is kept in balance. So what happens is when we do that gym trip and we forgot to take off our leggings or our workout clothes, or if we are sleeping in underwear a lot, or we're wearing a lot of binding things and we forget in a warm, moist environment, we're always sitting with our legs crossed like so, she's not getting any air. It's an anaerobic environment. Yeast love, you know, when you're baking bread, you have to cover it, cover the bread and you have to sit it somewhere. So then the yeast can proliferate. What are you doing when you're sitting with your legs crossed all the time? If you have a few yeast in there, you're prone to these infections. It's only going to make it worse. So I actually sit like man spreading and give her air. I try not to do anything binding and I drink enough water. The other thing I wanted to cover is how our vagina changes over time. I think that's a really important one because, you know, I'm in perimenopause now and I've given birth recently, kind of recently, and, you know, I've been a young woman and it really does change, but I don't know if we really talk about it. And there's, you know, jokes we may, you know, talk about, there may be things we read about, but what are the facts? What happens after birth? Um, is that, so your vagina can stretch almost 10 times its normal diameter in order to allow for the birth of your child. And that's all because of collagen. And we love collagen, right? That's our favorite, favorite molecule. It helps all of this in your cheeks. It helps your lips stay nice and plump. 
these are the things that we like about collagen. Now, unfortunately, of course, as we move into the perimenopausal portion of our existence on earth, you're going to have less collagen in that system, wherever you're talking about, even in your vagina. So your, your vagina is going to be a little bit less elastic because collagen is that stuff that is, gives us a lot of strength, but it also gives us elasticity. So less elasticity in that area is true. Um, also, you're going to have less estrogen in that system as well. So less estrogen means lactobacillus, which loves estrogen, might decrease. And that's that healthy bacteria I talk about like all the time in the book, lactobacillus here, lactobacillus there. So you're going to have a little bit less lactobacillus because of less estrogen. Less estrogen also means less blood flow to that area as well. So you do have a few things working, not necessarily against your vagina. It's just a change in your vagina. I tell my patients this all the time because I even talked about this in the book. I had a patient who was an older patient. She was 80, I believe. And she had some discharge for, and told her primary care doctor, primary care doctor sent it to me. I looked, everything looked fine. In fact, it looked better than fine. And I said, well, everything looks fine. Why'd your doctor send? Like, oh, it has a discharge. I was like, well, what are you doing? Are you having any sex? She's like, husband, we've been going at it like bunnies since he got that little pill. What that tells me is this. Sure, there might be physiologic changes. However, if you're still using your vagina to her potential, her, I kind of anthropomorphize, shame on me. But if you're using your vagina, it's still going to be there for you sexually. And it will actually, she's still having discharge because it's being stimulated. So even if your vagina has a little bit less collagen, has a little bit less blood flow, has a little bit less lactobacilli, it can still take you long and far if you're still treating her right. With birth, it, it sounds like there's not a ton that we need to, like, is there a, a change that people can have? Like I know in the book, you talked about like prolapse and, you know, the health of the pelvic floor. Mm -hmm. Outside of that, are there other things that women should be prepared for like near-term or long-term that may change? It's primarily from sexual function that my patients have concerns after they've had their babies. And especially when we talked about like that part right there, the perineum between the vagina and the rectum that might have torn. I have had some patients have some pretty significant pain there. And actually there's muscle groups under that. That's pelvic floor issues. So primarily my patients are more concerned about what sex going to feel like, what's it going to feel like for my husband. And that's why we talk about using a pelvic floor therapist. And if you can't have one in your area, at least doing some basic exercises to help keep your pelvic floor healthy. That's going to keep you, you know, leak free or at least leak decreased. That's actually also going to help decrease the risk of prolapse. Have like eight and a half, nine pound baby, your vagina, even though it's a really great organ, that was still a stretch for it. Right. You want to have at least, you know, five, six pounds, which is easier for your vagina to handle. You have a seven, eight pound baby. Sure. That could be a, a problem, but doing those pelvic floor exercises can be really, really helpful. So pain is one of the big issues. And I talk to my patients all about that. Start slow, start with lots of foreplay, kind of just start with a very, very slow entry point. Those are the things that my patients really, really are concerned about more than anything else after birth. But then as we kind of start to move into the menopausal transition, dryness becomes a really big deal. And we talk about the use of a really good silicone-based lube. 
I like silicone better because it sticks better than a water-based lube, but you're going to get it like a Walgreens or, you know, uh, Dwayne Reed or something like that. And it lasts a lot longer. Uh, don't use oil-based lubes because if you are having sex with uh, a penis holding person and using a condom, that can break down the condom. Right. So silicone is going to be the best. And um, if you don't have a partner, then hate to talk about it. Not to hate to talk about it. I love to talk about it, but masturbation can be helpful because that can keep your vagina lubricated. Even if you don't necessarily use a toy, that's going to keep your vagina lubricated when you're sexually stimulated. Okay. Probably very important for single folks during COVID, right? Oh yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, I've been interviewing some sex experts, so we've been having a a ton of fun. Um, I I just, I love talking about things that people don't want to talk about. I just, I truly get such joy. I don't know why, but I do. Okay. And then you talked about also um, es- vaginal estrogens for those in um, oh, yeah. perimenopause and menopause. So talk to us about that because, um, you know, I know that the facts are starting to come out more and becoming more clear, especially in light of social media, but there could be still some of the myths out there about estrogen's bad. You're going to get cancer and all of these things are going to happen to you. So yes. um Talk to us about the vaginal estrogen and how that can be beneficial for perimenopausal and menopausal women. And then maybe some of the the myths around estrogen, generally speaking. Estrogen for ladies who are really suffering from, you know, pretty moderate to severe vaginal dryness. So we know that estrogen helps to support lactobacillus, which is the healthy bacteria, which is responsible for good lubrication, the overall health of the vagina. Estrogen also helps bring blood flow to that area too. More blood flow is going to equal a pinker, chubbier. And the only place we want wrinkles is in our vaginas. And those wrinkles indicate beautiful, redundant, nice, beautiful, stretchy tissue. Okay. So when we need, if we need to, we need to substitute the estrogen that is not in our systems. We do it locally with a vaginal based estrogen. And over time, that can help bring back lactobacilli that will certainly bring back blood flow. And it can also help with lubrication. Now I actually talk about, and I had to put a box, like a special little area in the book about does estrogen in my vagina give us, give, give you cancer. So we looked at their original study that was done many, 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 many years ago called the women's health initiative. And they looked at this was a huge study. They looked at women in like in the big, the upper five figures of women over many, many years and looked at postmenopausal women who use vaginal estrogen have the same risk of invasive breast cancer, uterine cancer, colon cancer, blood clots, and stroke as those who didn't use vaginal estrogen. And that study was massive and pretty, pretty clear. Vaginal estrogen generally does not cause cancer. And by the way, you also talked in the book about estrogen dominance. I know so many that I've interviewed on my podcast have said, I'm so sick of this terminology. We need to stop using the terminology because technically that's not what's happening. Oh, estrogen dominance. Um, I believe estrogen dominance kind of, kind of came from the alternative medicine sphere, but in actuality, it's more of a testosterone imbalance than anything else. But I think women just don't like to use that term testosterone, but what happens is if your body has too much of one thing, it turns it into the other. So if your body has too much testosterone, because we'll see women who have a little bit of hair there, um, their clitoris might be a little bit more engorged than normal. 
your body doesn't know what to do with it. So it turns it into estrogen. And that's how you end up with excess estrogen, which stimulates the uterus entirely too much, which can cause irregular cycles can also over a long period of time, increase the risk of invasive uterine cancer because too much estrogen is not a good thing. That's the, the concern about calling it estrogen dominance is we're not looking at the root cause of the problem. Very important. Thank you so much. And, and I don't think we're trying to make people panic if you're going to have, if you have this quote unquote estrogen dominance, you're going to get the cancer, but it's an important awareness to have because you've explained what happens to the body. And certainly I would assume talk to the doctor and make sure you're solving for the root cause. Discuss it with your physician or practitioner. Okay. And then since you were talking about probiotics, I do want to address this. I hadn't planned on to, but I I would like to, because I think it's an important topic because so much is coming out about probiotic. There's various combinations of women's probiotics. There's, you know, if you're menopausal, if you're a woman, if you just want general probiotics, and then do you put it in your vagina? Do you take it orally? And if you take it orally, does that help what's going on with your vagina? It's confusing. I like to start with the basics, Georgie. When you're in the probiotic aisle, I usually will just get a general probiotic. You're going to like, oh my God, which one? You want the one that's going to give you a lactobacillus species, like we talk about. I want to, I want to keep it easy. There's different, there were, you want to have different types of lactobacillus, but for this discussion and for you going to whole foods, make your life easy. Acidophilus, 50 billion parts per million. And the one that you usually have to keep in the fridge. Now they're developing shelf life available 50 billion parts per million that you can keep without your fridge. But for right now, the one that you have to keep in the fridge, 50 billion parts per million, usually of the lactobacillus species. Now, if it's oral or vaginal, we know that whatever we do with our guts, the guts really are more of the engine of our innards than we realize. We're learning this now. We're kind of catching up to the fact that our GI tract helps to regulate many, many things. I say healthy gut, healthy vagina. So you don't necessarily have to expend the extra money because you know there's a female tax on everything. So if you go to the health food store and you see a general probiotic, and then you'll see a women's health probiotics, probably like $10 more. That's true. Let me ask you this. So, cause one of the things I actually spoke to a friend of mine and, and she's a nurse practitioner and she's worked with wealthy um, patients and those um, who are very, very poor. And one of the things she talked about, and I've a- actually told her it's a frustration for me as well. And it's a lot of it is our healthcare system is it seems like a lot of the things we cover, the solutions are for people who have great insurance coverage and a lot of money. So let's say I can't go to Whole Foods and Mm -hmm. what do I do? Is it not worth getting the ones that aren't refrigerated? Is it better than nothing? Like where would you say, and I know that you're not like the deep science in probiotics, but generally speaking as an OBGYN who sees so Mm -hmm. many different patients, what would you say? I would say that any good general health probiotic is better than no probiotic at all especially if your gut is a little bit irregular or if your diet is not the greatest diet ever. And we live in America, for God's sake, we all know we are not eating the ideal diet on the whole. Therefore, whatever probiotic you can get that has a lactobacillus species in it is going to be helpful. Okay. That's helpful. Thank you so much. I have so many of my patients who their overall health is not the best. And when they say, oh, my vagina is just, uh, it's just not working right. And I go, 
Yes, because your overall health is lacking. Vaginal health and total health are going to be intertwined. So keep that in mind. When you're healthy, your vagina is generally healthy. If you're living an unhealthy lifestyle, we can't expect to have beautiful, normal monthly periods. We can't expect to have lovely, clear discharge and a very slight scent. Because if we're not putting in the right things in our bodies, we're not treating our bodies appropriately, how can we, let, how can we expect one of the repositories? And the, the vagina, I think, is kind of like a litmus test for our own health. How can we expect our vaginas to be healthy if we're not healthy ourselves? A question that I, I think I'm going to start asking my guests, because it's something that I've been so curious about, is as a practitioner who's seeing all of these patients, what would you say is your greatest frustration or challenge when it comes to you feeling like you can do your job effectively? If I could wave my magic wand, I would make all the medications I prescribed to everybody free. (laughs) But barring that, it goes back to what I was talking about. I have a lot of my patients who suffer from obesity, hypertension, many, many other just myriad chronic health conditions, I would want us to all be compliant with our overall health more than anything else. I have patients who won't take their high blood pressure medicines, or if they're diabetic, they're kind of iffy about taking their meds, or if they're just kind of generally unhealthy or overweight, people aren't, it's, it's tough. This is America. I just want us to be, to think a little bit more about how we get one body for this whole time that we're on earth. And I want us to treat this body like it's the only one we're going to get. That's what I would do. If I could raise my patient magic wand, then I would have nothing else to do other than pap smears. And that would just make my, be my greatest joy. That's awesome. What about a doctor magic wand? Like what about for you being able to do your job? Is there anything that has really made it a challenge that you wish you could see differently besides having medications be less expensive or free? Increasing our access to care. Managed care has really, especially for people like gynos, because we're kind of in this weird place. We are not necessarily specialists, but we're not necessarily primary care doctors. You don't want me to manage your high blood pressure because I don't remember all those drugs. But then again, when it comes to trying to get patients who are in these specific kind of HMOs, it's so hard for them to kind of access care. And as far as I'm concerned, gynecologists should be a part of primary care, but we shouldn't be the only primary care. Sorry, women, you're going to need two doctors. If you have high blood pressure, and you have something else going on in your vagina. You should be able to walk into the doc to my office at any time without a referral, without having to call two people and send a fax. And that's my, ugh, that as you can see, that really, that's my biggest frustration. Thank you for sharing that. Now, fun fact, tell mm-hmm. us a fun fact about Dr. Nicole Williams. I know how to tap dance and I'm actually really, really good at it. I'm incredibly good at tap dancing, which is the most useless thing. <laughs> if I would have known this, so I don't prep my guests for this question because it's so fun to get the impromptu. But if I would have known this, I would have said, get out those tap shoes. I want to see it. <laughs> oh, darn, they're at home. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, it has been a true pleasure getting to know you. And thank you for writing this book because, you know, I think um, we don't always know what we're supposed to know the basics and it's really helpful to have a comprehensive 
summary of the foundations. And I think you did a great job in making it a fun book, um, really easy. And I think that that recipe for um, yeast infections um, sheds light on exactly how much fun, but helpful the book is to read. So thank you so much. It's my pleasure, Georgie. Thank you so much again for having me on.